Melbourne's Esplanade Hotel in St Kilda has witnessed plenty of wild and raucous live music acts during its long history. This morning, the ESPY will host a more sober gig, but one which promises to revive Australia's arts and culture industry. The headline act is the Federal Arts Minister, Tony Burke, who hopes to wow the audience with the Labor government's new national cultural policy. So are we on the cusp of a creative renaissance in Australia? To discuss all of this, I'm joined by actor and producer Rachel Griffiths, Jaguar Jones, who is a musician, an artist and an advocate who has campaigned about abuse and sexual harassment in the music industry, and playwright and director Wesley Enoch, too. Welcome to all of you. Good Thanks, morning, Patricia. Patricia. Well, good let's, morning. Good morning. Let's go round the table quickly from your own experiences. How healthy is the arts and culture industry here in Australia? Uh, Jaguar Jones, I'll start with you. Um, I would say it's extremely unsustainable at the moment and the conditions that we're working within has seen like a reduction in the middle class, which makes it really difficult to maintain um, and keep growing uh, with an unsustainable career. Wesley? I agree. And I think in many ways we're we're still um, living off the investment from 20, 30 years ago. There's not a real kind of pipeline in the way that we used to have of how people would be training and aspirational and moving through. And I worry that for the future about what's the future of the arts in Australia if we don't have that kind of pipeline. Rachel Griffiths as a creative in film and television. How do you see it? Um, well, I think it's really interesting to to use that term middle class because um, I do think over the last 20 years who can afford to be an arts worker and run an arts small business um, has been hollowed out. I speak obviously probably from the pointy end of this. Um, so there is stuff I might talk to around the streamers. Um, but I do think this having a cultural policy announced loudly and proudly is a great start. I think... Um, it being called revive is, you know, that I think that's a very healthy aspiration because there has been a lot of industries on life support, um, music and writing get a big boost this year, and and they particularly have really I think lost uh, an opportunity to have an have an income. But I think this policy also has some um, aspiration to to reach um, areas of the community that perhaps aren't supported by, you know, rich mummies and daddies because we do want our arts to be regionally reflective and it's a, a place where all Australians, no matter where you're coming from or how much money you're born into, have the opportunity to have your stories heard. Um, and that can only be done with a policy and then money to back it up. Uh, good language there, rich mummies and daddies. You need to actually have a policy that can bring different people up for sure. Wesley, you participated in the consultation process for Revive and brought ideas forward about the role of First Nations people in the future direction of arts and culture. Are you pleased that this plan says it will be First Nations first? And what does that actually mean in practice? Yeah, look, I think we haven't had... uh, uh a coherent kind of arts and cultural statement like this since the days of ATSIC, you know, 20 something years ago, where where we were self-determining what we wanted it to be. And I think in many ways, 
what we're seeing is uh, a maturation of the country. We want to hear First Nations stories, but we can only actually do those on on our terms as First Nations artists. And I, what I loved about this cultural policy, uh, as you read between the, the lines, is actually a removal of the kind of ideological framework that often the arts and culture talk about. You know, you know, we talk about rich mummies and daddies there, but also the whole kind of art for art's sake or art not connected to community or, or this kind of idea that what I'm reading in the art this policy is really a sense of deep connection to community and that the commercial and the subsidised sector working together, and especially in the First Nations environment where we know that there's very successful First Nations visual artists in particular who actually need a hand up to go, we can expand and grow bigger and we need protections for that, as well as an investment in First Nations performing arts to actually... um, if you like, realise the potential that we've got there. It's so often as a small First Nations theatre company or whatever, you don't have access to the resources. And what this policy is saying is it will help shape and invest in First Nations performing arts to realise the potential for the, for the good of the whole country, really. Rachel, I want to bring you back in. Art and culture is a $17 billion industry that employs, I think it's an estimated 400,000 Australians, many operating as small businesses. Why do you think those working in the creative industry are often overlooked when it comes to receiving government support, especially given it is such a distinctive and important industry for for our our national, you know, our international reputation? Um, That's a million-dollar question. Um, Look, I do like to use that word that we use in Victoria of creative industries because I think asserting that language... Um, is constantly reminding people that, you know, most people working, uh, you know, across the broad spectrum of what, you know, we might call arts are running small businesses, they're self-employed. Um, and the language that's been coming to us, I think, has been kind of not respectful in a way of workers. You know, everything from doubling the price of an arts degree as if there's no economic, you know, um, contribution coming from arts workers. So I like to assert the export, uh, you know, industry, the what it generates, that we are workers. And there's some really interesting stuff in this um, revised um, policy that really wants to remind Everybody, if you're hiring a wedding photographer, that no, she's not going to do your wedding for nothing. <laughs> she is running a business as a creative worker and she should be paid for your wedding, you know, photos. But I think there's been a lot of volunteerism, a lot of it's just a hobbyism um, that's very frustrating for people who employ other people, who support their families, and particularly over the pandemic, I think a lot of workers were kind of reminded in language um i know in the film industry it's like well we're employing you know set builders and electricians well we're also employing storytellers and that's a very important part of any mature uh nation's existence of who tells the stories who makes sense of what the nation's going through um so i think it's those things it should be a you know partly a hobby um, but not really integrated into the whole wages structure mm. of an economy. And I think this policy is trying to wake up um, the ears of the nation to to the to the nature of work for what we do. Jaguar Jones, 
Obviously, the, the music industry suffered a lot during the pandemic. Where do you see things right now and how do you think this, this particular policy that's going to be unveiled at the ESPY uh, might transform that? Well, obviously, um, the music industry, uh, especially in the live music sector, really suffered through COVID um, and we're still reeling with, from the effects of that due to consumer uncertainty as well as climate change um, and just the cost of touring in general uh, is now out of reach for so many due to inflation and travel costs and insurance blowing out. Um, we're also looking at the digital isola- isolation uh, due to the homogenization of music in the streaming culture and how Australian artists are being ring-fenced into being only Australian artists with very little digital and algorithmic gains being made in other countries. And then one of the issues that's really close to my heart in trying to raise awareness is the fact that artists are workers and we should be seen as workers. And with that, we should have the right to a safe workplace. Um, And so there's ongoing sustainability issues here too, where there's an imbalance of power and abusive behaviour has been allowed and almost encouraged through the industry. Uh, And it's also created the issues we're talking about with financial abuse and an artist loss mentality. Mm. So uh, I think this new cultural policy uh, starts to look and acknowledge uh, the issues that we've been facing, uh, especially in the music and live music uh, industry. Uh, And we need to make sure that we're putting artists first and protecting their careers, both mentally and financially, uh, and implementing um, levers to make sure that there's accountability through that process. Jaguar, you just mentioned power imbalance, uh, which of course you know happens in all industries, but the, the, you've been highlighting a particular kind of power imbalance and campaigning against some of the exploitative behaviours that exist in, in the industry you work in. You must welcome the announcement then that the new Centre for Arts and Entertainment Workplaces will be formed to ensure creative workers are paid fairly and have safe workplaces away from harassment and discrimination, right? Particularly that that really gendered um, um, element that you've been trying to highlight over the last couple of years. I was... Um Really stoked to have that announced. Um, I had the honour of being on the centrality of the artist pillar um, and I was also in the working group uh, that commissioned a report, a review into the music industry and to be able to bring that report into government and say, hey, these are the recommendations and we can only do so much without government support. I need you to hear me out um, and to finally be heard after fighting and uh, advocating for so long uh, with not much support at all uh, is a really heartening moment for Mm. me. Rachel Griffiths, you also think that this is long overdue, I know. Why does there need to be a separate body to oversee working conditions? Um, Look, there is an imbalance in many... um, you know, companies and structures in the arts in not necessarily that they're all powerful, but they're small workplaces that the balance between those seeking opportunities and those being able to provide them, I guess, you know, is a numbers game, which is not on the, you know, particularly the starting out, you know, cultural workers side. So because they're small workplaces and there might not be a lot of employers, it's really critical to have an independent place to report to. Um, I think it's not really dissimilar to what Jenkins did with the Parliament 
um, of, of workers in staff offices. Who do I report to when my boss is also hiring me? So I think it also puts companies on notice, knowing that there is an independent body, both to report cultural safety, um, you know, racism, harassment in the workplace, as well as sexual harassment. Um, and I think it just gives that peace of mind to the worker to go, this is not okay. I've tried to flag something. I don't like how it's uh, not being progressed or what's come back at me for having the courage to report something. And I think it puts the companies on notice knowing that there is a third entity that might come back and say, you know, hey, you know that um, funding that we've been giving you for three years, we've had two complaints coming about cultural safety or sexual harassment. It feels like your organisation is not addressing it. We'll pull your funding. And I think that's a pretty good stick to have. Um, I'm not afraid of that um, doing anything other than, again, creating safe places for people to work. And it is an untraditional workplace. I think the music too, where, you know, we perhaps are a bit looser traditionally when you're creating in a writer's room or, you know, there are things, processes that may not fit into the corporate culture, but there still have to be obviously clear lines to create um, safe places for people. So I, I think it'll... I think it'll really encourage anyone whose house isn't in order mm. to get it in order. Yeah, of course, you can be creative and also safe, of course. Exactly. <laughs> now, exactly. Wesley, that's, that's a new thing. body called Creative Australia will also be formed with a broad remit to support and invest in the contemporary music industry, writers, illustrators, with $286 million in dedicated funding. Does that funding uh, over four years sound like ample investment to revive the industry? Oh look, I think it's a it's always going to be a contribution, and and I should just say that that Creative Australia is the um, the evolution of the Australia Council. It'll be the next version, and within that too, that new Indigenous body, which will be interesting to see, a new Indigenous-led board, um, which I, I think at this particular time too, where we've been talking about a voice to Parliament, I love that the idea that arts and culture are the voice of the people. It's the way you understand stories. It's the way you understand communities, and I think that this policy has kind of embraced that as well. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it um, very much. Uh, I, I love that, Wesley. Um, Rachel, I just want to go to streaming giants. Netflix, Disney, Amazon Prime, others, of course, too, will be required to invest in making local Australian content. But there are still some questions around the mechanism for the quota. What's your understanding and what do you think the threshold should be? Look, I don't, I, I'm not in the weeds on this. I think it's important that we're unafraid of these disruptors. And I, I think there has across the world um, in all areas from, you know, media to uh, delivery people, there has been a fear of taking on the disruptors. And I think there's been too good an open pasture land for them all to feed on. I'm not sure how much tax is being paid from the money that's being extracted from this economy. And I think there's got to be a, a level playing field so that local media companies... Um, you know, are not carrying the weight of obligations in the social contract to us, our Australian audiences that these, you know, um, newcomers aren't carrying. That's obviously not fair. So I think just to state that it will happen, um, it's on the cards, that, that the government is unafraid of it is good. Um, 
where the streamers have had to make local content uh, in overseas countries, I think, has worked. And there might have been screams of the house will, you know, fall down and they'll leave. They haven't. Um, and they have engaged with local content. I would hope it's not just a series of bad reality shows to quickly, you know, fill up those hours um, and that they meet the children's television um, quotas as well. Um, I'd be interested to see how this plays out, but I think one needs to state the desire and then move through the engagement and hopefully it's not um, tokenistic. Um, but the streamers, I do think, are stepping up. They're starting to find shows like Heartbreak High are selling back to the world, um, Colin from Accounts selling to the world, um, just as our ABC shows are as well. It's a big export opportunity um, and I... I see a hopeful future when Australian content is, um, you know, is not seen as Australian content on, on streaming platforms around the world, but globally recognised fabulous Australian stories that are interesting and unique. Just final word to you, if I can, Wesley. This package is being kind of presented by the government as a restoration of money cut by the former Liberal and National Government. How far should the state step up in support for creative industries? Oh, I think that the state should step up as well. I mean, ultimately, everything is a partnership. And I think that what we're seeing, not just about cash from the cultural policy, but also a statement of purpose, a, a statement of values, that the artists are being valued in multiple different ways. And that that hopefully will lead a culture of um, bringing the artist forward, bringing the artist back into the centre of the conversation about our national identity as well, that we can provide the voice, if you like, for how the whole country can see itself. And I think that states are often focused a lot on infrastructure and hopefully what we can push a little bit more is how do you support the artist, not just the building that they're in? And states, I think, need to go the next step and go beyond just infrastructure to support the artist in them. You three are stars in your own right, but excellent to have on this panel with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Patricia. Thank Thanks, PK. Thanks, guys. And uh, joining us this morning are th three people who've been, you know, uh, really, really strong, strong players uh, in all of these spaces. Rachel Griffiths, of course, is an actor and a producer. Jaguar Jones is a musician, artist and advocate who has campaigned about abuse and sexual harassment in the music industry. And, of course, there was playwright, director and Kwandamuka man Wesley Enoch there too. You're listening to ABC RN Breakfast. <laughs> ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.